In our next episode of Behind the Boss, we meet Nick Mayhew. A Paralympic sprint runner and soccer player, Nick represented the United States at the 2020 Summer Paralympics, where he won three gold and one silver medal. He currently holds three Paralympic world records and three American records. And all of this came after beginning a career in soccer and being diagnosed with cerebral palsy at the age of 14. It's time to find out more about Mayhew's remarkable journey from such a young age and what got him to where he is today. Nick, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. How are you doing? It's great to be here. I mean, my main question, having, you know, very briefly swung three of your gold medals around my neck (laughs) before we started recording, is how does it feel to be an Olympic gold medalist. Yeah, it's, I mean, honestly, it's indescribable. To be honest, it hasn't hit me. Mm. And, you know, that moment of, you know, such a euphoric, I'm a you know, world record gold medalist. And yeah. that's sort of my family and my friends that have really tried to get on me about, you know, you know appreciate this, enjoy it, you know, like mm. have fun. And it's just, I'm always looking to what's next. But I mean, it's incredible to try to inspire some other people to do what I've done. So it's, it's awesome. And it was your first ever paralympics and you went straight for gold yes sir (laughs) it's funny funny enough i actually sat down with my coach when i decided i was a footballer at the time yeah playing soccer for the for the national team and i sat down with him and he had trained with me for a couple years before and i sat down with him and i said hey you know i got this opportunity uh with team usa they want me to run track Mm. and he looked back and chuckled at me and i said i'm gonna you know go to tokyo and i'm gonna win a gold medal yeah and he got up and walked out of the room and uh (laughs) And said, Never come, heard from him again. and said, uh, exactly. <laughs> he said, no, again. you're done. You're done. You only play soccer. And he yeah. left and said, come back to come back tomorrow and tell me again. And so the next day I walked back into his office, told him to sit down. And I said, coach, I'm going to go to Tokyo and I'm going to win a gold medal. Yeah. And I said, you are going to train me to get there. And he said, all right, let's get to work. So he didn't believe in you at first. No, he did. He was just, he had to test me to see if I was really yeah. going to commit to it. Because he has been working with the Olympic track sprinters for, you know, almost better half of a decade. And yeah. so he's got a lot more experience than I do in the sport. And so he understand what it really took. And I didn't understand it at first. And it yeah. was a, a long journey to understand that. And even now, you know, I'm still learning. Just <laughs> explain to me that feeling of getting up on the podium and the guys there with... A gold medal for you. Yeah, that was, I mean, it's, it's incredible. It's such a speechless moment because you see, I grew up watching the Olympic events and watching them and hearing your national anthem and just feeling so honored to be able to watch that and Mm. to think about what that moment would feel like. And it was, it was incredible to watch, but then to really walk out into the stadium and know that you're about to walk out and receive a gold medal and listen to your national anthem. I cried for mm-hmm. sure. It was definitely, and I know I, more so I was emotional because I knew my brother and my family and, and everybody were watching me and I knew that they were crying at home yeah. as well. And it was, and they couldn't be there obviously because of COVID and it was bittersweet, but it was such a, a wow moment. Like, I don't know. I get chills thinking about it. Yeah, it's, me too. Yeah. I, and I've, as I said, I've won the medal. So yeah, I know exactly. how yeah, you difficult it must've been to Thank you for down. letting me I keep them. <laughs> I thought I should give them back to you. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> Did you always want to be an athlete? Was that your dream for when you were a yeah, kid? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, ever since I can remember, I always, you know, back in grade school when they would write, you know, what do you dream of when you would be older? And I always wrote an athlete. I always wrote pro footballer. Mm-hmm. And it was always something that I'd stuck in my mind. I always knew that I was going to do something in sport. And if I wasn't playing soccer or if I wasn't running track and field or if I wasn't a pro athlete, I would have to do something in the sport. I could never see myself sitting at a desk doing anything else. Mm. I just wonder what happened with your transition from sort of able-bodied 
athlete, athlete athletics, <laughs> athletics. <laughs> thank you, into um, Paralympian. Yeah, I mean, I so my entire life I grew up playing able-bodied sports, you know, mm. and I, from my, up until I was 14, I had always known that there was something wrong with my left side. There was something off, mm -hmm. but it wasn't enough to get other people, doctors, coaches, or teachers, or even my own parents to really believe me mm -hmm. enough to see a doctor and then run some tests or order some tests. Um, because I was so athletic, because I was so competitive, I always mm -hmm. wanted to be the best with or without my left side, abled or disabled. So it didn't really matter about the competition. You put me up against somebody. One thing I can't control is my work ethic. And there's nobody in this world that if you're next to me, you will never outwork me. Mm -hmm. uh, that has carried me my entire way of able-bodied sports and then you know up until i was introduced to the opportunity to um, compete in the paralympics and to be able to compete at this level is an honor but it's the same mindset it's just a whole different game so you went for tests at 14 yeah so i um it was funny because each physical or any something that i would have to do before i would even be able to play sports in um you know recreational or in middle school or in mm. university or anything i would have to go in for regular checkups and i would always tell my doctor i'd say you know i feel so there's something off can we run like an mri mm. i would do my own google search and they were you know hey why is this 12 year old asking about an mri like yeah. what does he know yeah and i could always know that there was something wrong but they you know i was so athletic and so fast and just so competitive that they yeah. never really saw anything and then it wasn't until I had a grand mal seizure when I was 14 and mm. unfortunately had to be rushed to the hospital that they ordered them there because they needed to and, you know, come to find out, you know, have a golf ball sized dead spot on the right side of my brain. What, what changed for you when it you was, found that out? I'll never forget that day. It mm. was the best and the worst day of my life. It was the best because it was more so a sigh of relief. You know, I'd, I'd grown up with people not believing me and always telling me no, um, not really really understanding what I had gone through, what mm. I was feeling physically and mentally. And then it wasn't until that point that I really was like, you know, they finally are like understanding and believing me. And it was all the dots started to connect. Like I was given an answer for... All, everything that I had dealt with yeah. and then also to then hear my neurologist look at me and tell me that she doesn't think I'll ever be able to play soccer again because mm. they didn't understand the severity of it and I remember getting up and looking at her and telling her that she was wrong and I just walked out and we never went back to that neurologist. Did it change your aspirations? It doesn't sound like it. No, not at all. But it was <laughs> in that moment I had a choice to make. You know, mm. it was very, it, it was very hard. I was 14. I was very naive. I was very stubborn, thought I knew it all. And to go from cloud nine of playing for, you know, the DC United Academy at the time and performing so well to then for the next day to wake up and have your world flipped upside down and being told you'll never be able to play soccer again. Mm. To go from such a high to hitting rock bottom for a 14 year old, I mean, it was the most it was the toughest decision I had to face. And it yeah. was either I could go down the path of allowing this diagnosis, allowing this sigh of relief and this breath of fresh air to mm. really allow it to overcome everything that I had gone through. And I would be able to use it sort of as a, like a sympathy card or, you know, or I can't do this or I couldn't go pro because, you know, I was diagnosed with this. It was sort of the easy way out. Or I could put it under the bed and, you know, tuck dunk it under, down. yeah, dunk it down and prove that I was always able to do what I've always set out to do with or without my left side. So what were your next steps after that? So I actually, um, I was, I mean, I was bouncing from team to team and mm. just trying to figure out, because um, at the time I was being recruited by Division One universities. I was given opportunities of, you know, the, the American way of going through football. Um, and really the the only way that you can here in the U.S. is through the academy, then through university, and then yeah. you, go, you go pro. And I was stripped of that. You know, any university that was recruiting me at the time, you know, dropped me because they mm. found out about my medical diagnosis and they mm. didn't want to take a chance, which was fine with me. I understood it's a business to 
to a, of sort. Um, and I actually was bouncing from team to team, driving upwards to two hours, four days a week, just to train for an hour, just to then drive home, you yeah. know, just to grab, try to get seen. And there was one coach that took a chance on me, allowed me to come in and as a walk on and, yeah. you know, prove myself. And I, was, I told him, I was like, I don't need a scholarship. I don't need anything from you. I just need a coach. I need an opportunity and, yeah. and I'll prove you right. I'll make sure that you made the right decision. And then I spent the next four years of my life just and doing what I do and proving people wrong and proving myself right. When you went to the Olympics, it wasn't in soccer. Mm -hmm. So what happened? So I joined the national team in 2017. I was a mm -hmm. junior in college at the time, um, playing football for the national team. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, the Paralympics had cut soccer from the program because there was no female counterpart so they actually brought in two more sports one male and one female of the same sport and rightfully so mm -hmm. and so actually team usa had uh, seen me compete that past summer at the pan-american games down yeah. in peru and the coaches of team usa track and field actually called me and they said hey you know we we saw you play and uh you know you're pretty fast and mm. you know we don't have any any a lot of males in your classification would you be interested in trying to run track and I said, yeah, like, I've always run track growing up to stay fit for football, yeah. but it was always distance. I ran the 800 and ran the mile and um, things that make me want to throw up now, yeah. make me sick to my stomach. <laughs> but, but I said, yeah, why not? So then I went down for trials and ran a lot better than I thought I did. And yeah. then, you know, committed to the next two years of my life, you know, training 10 hours a day, six days a week to get to Tokyo. But wait, you can't, you don't just pivot to track and field, do no, you? No, what? No. <laughs> oh, no. You don't just spend 10 that's hours a day I had thought. That's, training. That's what I had thought. Because a lot of people think, you know, it's just, it's running. Initially, that's what I thought. You know, I, I, as soon as Team USA called me, I called my brother. He's yeah. my best friend, one of my coaches. And I called him, I said, hey, you know, we got this opportunity with track, you know, we're going to go to Tokyo, we're going to do this. Mm. And he laughed and he's like, you don't get it. Mm. And I said, what? He said, I said, you're fast on you know, he told me you're fast on the field, but that doesn't correlate to the track. Mm. You know, the two different running mechanics are two different sports. There's two different respects of those two worlds. And at the time, I didn't understand. Mm. And that it wasn't until I started to train for track and field that I understood what he meant. What's the difference? I actually had to completely relearn how to run. Yeah. Every running mechanic, everything, because soccer is a 360 rotational sport. You have to be ready to move in any direction mm -hmm. at any time. Mm -hmm. So in track is just a linear straight go. There's one little curve of the 200, two, uh, two curves in the 400, one lap on the track. And so it was funny to really kind of think about that. And then when I was put to the test of it, of putting on, of getting me on the track and just timing me or understanding my running mechanics and really looking at them, running out of the blocks. Yeah. I have never felt as uncomfortable mm -hmm. as I did when I had gotten into the box for the first time. And it, that initial experience of trying to relearn how to run, have my coach dissect my footage and have me sit there and look at what I thought was me running fast. You know, it looked yeah. good. I got out, I ran this. He's like, okay, you're going to look at this back. And if I tell you, if I were to pull up my phone and show you videos of me running back in yeah. November of 2019, I would get sick to my stomach. I can't yeah, even look I'd at see that. a footballer, right? Yeah. Uh, well, I would see that's and player. that's the thing. I'm glad that you said that because it's I, at that point, I was a footballer trying to run track. Yeah, and I sit before you today as a track athlete, and the time it took to get here, yeah, was incredible, and it was just the most grueling, hardest thing I've ever had to do in my entire life. Yeah, just re programming. Mm -hmm. I just think about competing at the Olympics. How do you stay motivated for like? the whole time of being there yeah i mean for me personally i i had to recruit uh, a small team yeah. i'm a homebody i mm -hmm. i'm very big in visualization um, meditation really just 
pushing everything forward and trying to put pieces in place before they happen, you know, Mm -hmm. manifesting everything. And the first thing I did from that first sit down that I had with my coach to telling him that when I got back home, I wrote down the world record times of each race I was going to run in and put them up on each wall of my house, my bedroom, my Mm -hmm. kitchen, my living room, the front entrance hallway, everything. So it would be the first thing I saw when I woke up Mm -hmm. and the last thing I saw when I went to bed. It really just ingrained it in my head. And so training for it, I really understood that I was going to do this. There was no, I see this every I think about it and it was the Mm. times that I was going to run and it's funny because in the two and a half years that I trained my coach did not time me once he wouldn't allow me to time myself yeah it was an ego thing Mm. I wanted to know you know where I was at benchmark and he said well if you do if you understand your time then you're either going to see your time and be happy with it and then not train as hard yeah not be as motivated or you're going to not as run as fast as you want and then be upset and it's going to change your mindset it's going to change your training Mm. it was really just trying to keep those people that I knew that they wanted what was best for me in my career and um, what I had to do to get there. Training those 10 hours a day, six days a week. And kudos to my brother who was with me the entire way. You know, there were so many days that I woke up at 6 a.m. and didn't want to roll out of bed or second guess myself and thought, you know, I'm a footballer. I can't do this. Mm. I'm not fast enough out of the box. I can't fix that cue. Mm. And there were things that I would get down on myself and he would be right there banging on my door at 6.30 telling me to get up that we needed to get to the track, get to the gym, Mm. you know, to finish that rep. And he was on the track with me every day. So, and then obviously being in Tokyo, not having that, I had worked with a hypnotherapist, you know, Mm. uh, my coach and a therapist, my brother, and just waking up and talking to them and really allowing myself to develop into that mindset of I'm here for this purpose. Yeah. And it's what I set out to do the first day. And the the desire that I had that first day is the same thing that I feel in this day on the race of my 100 final, the 200 final, mm-hmm. 400 and the four by one. It was those same feelings. And funny enough with my hypnotherapist, I don't know if she wants me to share this, but I think she'd be proud as I would speak to her and we would run through it. Um, run through the race and I would have to tell her how I thought the race would go and how I was thinking about it. And mm. every time she, I would cross that finish line, she said, what do you see? And each time that I said was the time that I ran. And, and so, no. yeah. yeah. That's it in, magical. It was incredible. So it was just, it was the discipline. I think that was the yeah. biggest thing was that you really have to commit to it. And there's yeah. really something in my brain that just is a little bit insane and a little bit of insanity. But I think each you know, person, if they want to be successful, no matter what it is that you do in athletics or in anything else, it's just a little bit of a, of a tick, a little bit of insanity that keeps you on track of what you need to do. Yeah. I'm just trying to think because something, there's something about being good at something physically and then there's your level mm-hmm. the next level yeah i mean it's as simple as that there's no secret it's just mm. the consistency and the discipline to doing what you have to do to get to where you want to be yeah there is no secret but especially to have pivoted from something you were already good at <laughs> <laughs> but i wasn't good at it i wasn't right okay you know i wasn't good i was good at i was good at running but i wasn't good at track and field there's yeah. two different yeah, yeah. worlds you know so yeah. and it really it really broke me down and funny enough the first six months of my training my coach wouldn't even work with me we would go to the track together just him and i and he would have the track blocks that you start out of and he would throw them on the track yeah. and say teach yourself how to do this you're not even worth my time He's like, you're, you're a footballer. And he would make me sit there and I would type in Usain Bolt track start, Usain Bolt block start, fastest block start. Yeah. And I would watch these athletes and their cues and what they did to get out of the blocks. And I would sit there on the track with my blocks and put them in different positions and just trial and error, trial yeah. and error. Yeah. And he would be sitting there on his phone, you know, on Instagram, messaging people, liking photos, watching, 
watching TikTok videos. And then <laughs> he'd look up and say, and say, no. And I look at him and he wouldn't coach me until yeah. one day he, he finally looked up and he said, let's get to work. He yeah. Said, You're ready. That's so, I mean, obviously it's a psychological game, coaching rather than like telling you what to do. Yeah. But there's also this like, you have to believe in it so wholeheartedly yeah. for it to mm-hmm. ever get to get yeah. out of the block. I under, I didn't understand how much I had to commit to it. That mm. was that was the biggest change for me and the biggest thing that I did not realize was how much I would have to commit to it. And one of the most critical moments for him and for me as an athlete to be coached by him was we actually sat in his gym and he, he had, had, was holding a conference at the time with coaches and doctors, scientists that he would work with was in sport. Yeah. And he brought them all in a room. He said, and he stopped me middle of my workout, you know, drenched in sweat and have no shirt on just the, the athlete mode. And he brought me in. He said, put your shirt on, sit down and at the head of the table. And I was surrounded with the 1% of the 1% and what they do, yeah. you know, scientists and coaches. And he sat at the other end and he said, this is Nick. He's a footballer. He wants to go and run track and field. And he told them everything that I wanted to go to Tokyo and do everything. And he said, and some of them smirked and laughed and they understood they understood and he said what i want you to do before we get started and before i let nick speak he said i want every single coach every person to go around this table and tell nick a reason why he will fail mm-hmm. and each person it was just like a dagger and then, you know is you know you're too you're too short you know your your technique is too sloppy or you're a soccer player there's not enough time he said you're not committed enough you won't do this and it was just like a punch and a mm-hmm. punch but it just it unlocked something in me and he's he brought me to his office afterwards and he said that wasn't for you and that wasn't for them and it wasn't for anybody else but for me he said now i know as a coach what i have to do to get you ready to be on that podium to get you to get what you want how did it feel the next day when you went out to train oh i've never i have never (laughs) i had never run that fast i bet you i ran faster than i did in tokyo yeah yeah yeah. you know and it wasn't it was the little things that i had to do being there 30 minutes before anyone else was there the coach was there anybody else or just the little things that i had to do yeah that the day before he had to cue me on i was just on top of it and those little disciplines those little consistencies the little things that athletes and people don't want to do because they think that it's not worth it Mm. it's not worth your time but it's those things that add on to then lead you to the bigger things that when you get into Tokyo and then you, you know, you realize you've transformed into this person that without those little things, you wouldn't be, yeah. you know, where you are. Interesting. What was it like arriving in Tokyo? It was, <laughs> it didn't feel real because it's funny because uh, no pun intended, but I didn't have any traction in the track world when yeah. I got there. You yeah. know, nobody really knew who I was. I was Nick Mayhew, a footballer trying to run track or like this guy who yeah. thinks he's going to do this. Huh? I held the the 200 American record. I had broken the 100 world record before. So mm-hmm. I had a little bit of, you know. Something. I had a little bit of confidence <laughs> going into it, you know, but on the world I stage. I break a world record en route. Right, gotcha. <laughs> but, you know, in, in getting there, it really... You know, when I when I walked into the stadium for the first time yeah. and saw everything, it, it became real. Yeah. I understood that I knew that I was ready to do what I had set out to do. Yeah. Um, and it really just allowed me to hone in and focus. But there were no fans. My family wasn't there. You know, yeah. my, my brother wasn't there. It was nobody. It was Empty just stadium. me. Yeah, there was yeah, nothing. crazy. There was nobody but the media, the coaches, mm. and, you know, the officials and the other athletes. Yeah, maybe that's part of the, that, like, that, all of that noise. I mm-hmm. wonder how helpful it is. Well, for me, I think ignorance was bliss in this certain situation. Yeah. It, it's funny because a lot of athletes were frustrated that, oh, it got postponed. You know, I have to train for another year. Mm-hmm. And it really messed up their training schedule. Yeah. But for me, I was, hey, 
You know, I got an extra year. Just from the pitch. You know, know, (laughs) I have an extra year to get ready, you know, and allowed me to really hone in and and really focus on what I wanted to do and allowed me to get better. And then all the races that I ran in prepping for Tokyo or the training sessions I had, there was nobody in the stands. There wasn't anybody allowed to be there because of COVID. So getting to Tokyo, it was really my element because yeah. I had been through that. That was what I was used to as a track athlete. Yeah, 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 yeah. So then getting there, it was sort of, it worked for me. You know, I love that pressure. Once the bright lights are on and yeah. I walk in there, I can hear the camera shuttering. I can hear the people talking, yeah. you know, talking trash and, you know, uh, we're doing all these things. That's what I'm used to. That's where I shine. Yeah. You know, pressure I, makes diamonds. And I just... I, <laughs> <laughs> very true. Yeah. It makes gold medals and yeah, a silver exactly. one. I went to the Olympics to the men's trampoline yeah. and it was completely silent and but. As they hit the top of the bounce, you could just hear the shots going. Yeah, exactly. Like, like in a massive like football yeah. stadium. And that's and that's the funniest thing because as I was running, I blacked out. It's funny yeah. enough, I actually don't remember a single race that I ran in. Wow. As soon as I walk out, I can hear the camera shuttering, and that's the last thing I heard. That's the yeah. last thing I hear. I don't register it. It just becomes, you know, uniform. It becomes just natural at yeah. that point, second nature. I become like a robot. But there's actually no race that I ran there in Tokyo that I remember because I was so focused and so, so narrow tunneled. Surely that is part of like the success of it, that you're not like, oh, I feel a bit something. Yeah, yeah, you're yeah. just like, I'm here to... Exactly. The announcers and people that I spoke to before, it was funny enough that I was able to uh, to talk to them and he said, you feel good? How are you? And we'd have a conversation behind the scenes and I was like, I'm good, but I- I'm going to go break the world record. Yeah. And he said, what do you mean? And he said, you broke it before. And I said, yeah, I'm going to go break it in the prelim. Yeah. And I'm going to go break it in the final. And he said, that's, that's big. And, and then after, as I'm, <laughs> as I'm running through the finish line, there was one race. And I think it was the 100 that I was looking at the clock as I was running past it. And then as soon as I cast, I looked at him and as I'm running, I was looking at him. I said, I told you, I yeah. told you, I told you. God, that's amazing. What does he say? Nothing. Oh, no, he was just sort of, <laughs> here she said, you did, you did tell me you did. He had to be professional in that moment, you know? <laughs> yeah. And then after the cameras cut off, we had our own conversation. Yeah. So I'll let that. What have you learned from the Paralympic community? Oh, I mean, uh, do you have enough time? Yes, I mean, it's, I've got all the time I mean, it's, for you. It's, it's unbelievable because I was unaware of the Paralympic world, mm-hmm. uh, you know, of Paralympic sports until I was 21 years old. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the things I'm very passionate about now is hoping and to get this message out, to educate other athletes, other parents and children that go through what I went through as a child. My goal is to hopefully inspire a generation to learn about the Paralympics so that they don't have to go through that same experience that I had to go through, Mm -hmm. to wait 14 years to be diagnosed, to then go 21 years not knowing that there was an entire world that will accept you, that will celebrate you, that you can feel comfortable in, that there are people just like you, depending on your severity of that, know exactly what you're going through, that you can compete and excel in. Mm -hmm. And so that's the biggest thing that I've learned, that the other sports and, you know, the stories that people have to go through and experience and just everything behind the scenes of what really goes into the sport of mm. disabled athletics is is incredible. And it's such an ever-changing, selfless act of understanding of the entire world. Mm-hmm. It's It's unbelievable and the most incredible thing I've been able to be a part of. I know you've won awards. Were there other times when you truly felt that you had, like, made it before the Paralympics. I don't think that I have. No. no. Oh, and that's the, not done. No, not even a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, we have Paris in, you know, three years. Yeah. I'm going to do the same thing I'm going to do that I did in Tokyo, but win four golds, not just three. 
you know, and, and do that. And then, you know, then we have LA in 28. So I'm always trying to think of what's next. So it's just sort of when I'm all said and done, I might have that moment. But right now, I, I will never allow myself to say that I've made it, you yeah. know, regardless of what I'm doing. Looking back, are there any kind of figures that have... Uh had a life-changing impact on your journey. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I definitely think my brother is the first one that comes to mind. He's my best friend. He's the one that's been there the entire way. Um, ever since I was little, you know, I've always looked up to him and mm. no matter if I wanted to admit it or not, you know, I always wanted to be like him yes. no matter what he was doing. He used to do soccer, right? Yeah, he was like actually, years older. Yeah, he's actually the one that got me into soccer. Yeah. Yeah. Growing up and him playing sports first and him yeah. playing soccer and excelling and being, you know, so uh, such a good athlete in, in football is something that I wanted to do. So I would go out and compete with him and want to be just like him, you yeah. know? So he's such a focal point for me, but also my coach, my, my training partners, Jason Rogers, who's a uh, Olympic sprinter for mm. St. Kitts. And, you know, and I was able to train with him and learn from him and he's been running track his whole life. And yeah. I definitely owe my journey to to some people. But at the end of the day, when I lay in bed and get up, it's just myself. And yeah. so, you know, I, I really look in the mirror and that's my only competition. That's the person that I have to really just stick with every single day and it was really hard at some points i didn't like the person that i had seen in the mirror for the longest time on that journey yeah i wasn't there yet i wasn't fast enough i wasn't technical enough yeah i definitely own a lot of things to a lot of people you know the people that i work with behind the scenes that unfortunately don't get the credit i think that they deserve but you know i i definitely make sure to to let them know how much i appreciate them yeah does anything like fun or funny happen on on your journey while you're training uh, i fall a lot <laughs> yeah. that's, that was the biggest thing because i wasn't yeah. used to wearing the track spikes yeah yeah yeah. um i had to get used to the track spikes that i was wearing you know getting out of the blocks or putting my hands in certain positions and having ang the certain angles as i get out of the blocks and and an often cue is to stay uh stay low stay low stay low and yeah, so yeah, i'll yeah, get yeah. out super low and trip on my feet and yeah, yeah, yeah. face plant under the track <laughs> and stuff but um you know that's a part of the process you know that's sort of an initiation to the whole sport of track and field so yeah. it was funny that i didn't understand the sport of track and field and what really went into it you yeah. know their traditions and everything that went into it so there and when i when i got to tokyo some of my teammates had some fun with me with the because i had never worn a track singlet before i had mm -hmm. never worn you know i'd wear compression shorts and such but i'd never worn you know a singlet and, and things yeah. so people would uh some of my teammates would make jokes of like what i should wear and shouldn't wear and yeah and, you know, certain things and certain sizes and stuff and i'd get out there and they would make fun of me and, and send me things because i would be you know i, I looked sort of out of place you yeah. know yeah but it was funny to, to let them have their fun with it did changing the outfits and stuff like change how you ran actually yeah i uh because i wore i wore my compression singlet for three out of my four races yeah. and the only race that i didn't wear that was with the 400 the was no. the 400 <laughs> was the 400 that's yeah. the only one but funny enough so i actually before i left for tokyo my um my dad gave me a gold chain that my mm -hmm. mom had given him when they were married mm -hmm. and he said that he wanted me to wear it in tokyo and i told him that i would and wear it throughout my races because i'd already worn a chain when i raced yeah but funny enough every race that i had run in i had a compression and would tuck my chain into my singlet yeah. but for my 400 i wore a looser tank top yeah. And as soon as I got out of the blocks and got up, my chain got stuck to the bridge of my nose. Yeah. And I ran the entire 400 with a chain stuck no to way. the bridge of my Because I couldn't, as I was running, yeah. I couldn't slip it. No, I couldn't. Like I would change my gait and I would, yeah. and I would mess up. And, you know, and so that, 
Not not to say that that's why I lost. No, you know, no, 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 no. No, but it's interesting. But it's funny that calib- calibra- the tiniest calibration to exactly. get you around that track. Yeah. And as soon as I got back to my phone, my coach had texted me. He said, your chain got stuck to your nose, didn't it? And I said, how'd you know? Because you can't see that on the screen. Yeah. And I said, how'd you know? And he said, your entire, my running form was entirely different. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. it's funny enough to say that, you know, on the one race that I had won a silver, my chain had gotten stuck. Silver's not too shabby. <laughs> oh, no, not at all. <laughs> but also, I think it's interesting. Do you have like superstition stuff you always have to do or not do? Actually, in track and field, my coach had told me of Japanese culture. They said that if you, it's good luck to put your left shoe before your right. And to tie oh, your shoe that like that. that would really mess with my day if and I did it that way the, around. The, <laughs> so the, yes. day before, the day before I left, he told me that. And yeah. so he said, as soon as you step foot in that country, he said, every single day from then on, you need to put your left foot, your left sandal, yeah. anything you wear, your left sock, anything. It needs to be your left before your right. And yeah. funny enough, hours before my race, he called me and said, before this one, this is the biggest one. It's going to be your toughest race. He was like, make sure you do it. And he was just on me about it. So that's, that's yeah. something funny. But the, yeah. the um, wait, wait, wait. Do you thing. still do left shoe first? Yeah. Yeah. See, because it works. <laughs> it have to. Once no. you're in the zone of like this works. No, I have to. And ever and since, you're like, I... is it real? Is it not? It works. Yeah. Now it does. So now every track meet, everything is sort of I get in that mode of being there back in back in Tokyo. Yeah. And I have to put my left my left <laughs> boot on before my right. Uh, so you talked a bit about your running singlet in Tokyo. Mm-hmm. What uh, what are the other kind of connections between like sport and style? I always tried to bring my own sort of swagger or style to any sport that I'm playing or anything that I really do in soccer you know I had the certain things that I would do but in track and field I really looked up to somebody like Usain Bolt Um, you know the style and swag that he had it was really just captivating people would turn on the TV to watch him be him Mm. you know I've tried to bring that to back to track and field the one thing I always do is as a haircut of mine I always try to do something different with my hair yeah Um, so when I went to Tokyo I actually um, got a certain cut and I had USA shaved in the back of my head Uh but uh, I had a lightning bolt as the as the s in the oh, usa very good. so just keep in touch and uh, stay tuned to see what i do for paris <laughs> yeah. i'll be wearing different cleats uh in yeah. paris i'm definitely going to make those a focal point but my hair will be too just tell me what three words do you believe are the traits that you need to be a good boss the first three that come to me is one instinct yeah two discipline mm-hmm. and i say three would be respect mm. i think you would have to have the instinct of being a boss, of being at that level of what you want to do and be as that as successful as you want to be no matter what you want to do. Yeah. The discipline to do it, the little things that correlate to then ending up becoming one big thing yeah. that it is you want to do. And then the respect of the no matter what it is you're doing and who you're working with. You know, going into track, I didn't have the initial respect to the sport of track and field. Yeah. And it humbled me very quickly. And I then know developed and understood and had the respect of track and field and no matter what it is i was doing and the people and the athletes that have trained for this their entire life i now was a part of that and i had Mm. to develop and understand that sort of respect for them Mm. my last question what's next more gold medals (laughs) i will look after the silver one if you want (laughs) yeah absolutely yeah yeah, for sure um that's definitely you know i I definitely want to to see how far i can go you know i'm really i'm obsessed with it wholeheartedly and just truthfully i'm obsessed with the sport of track and field and more importantly i'm obsessed with pushing myself mentally and physically to see how far i can really 
go. Yeah. And no matter what it is I do, um, yeah. and whether that's in track and field or, you know, in any other venture I go in or maybe even another sport that might be a surprise in oh, the right. near future. So another pivot, which yeah. you will surely take in your stride. There'll be another pivot. I'll give you that, but I won't tell you what it is. Great. Well, thank you very much for being on the podcast. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to Behind the Boss with your host. That's me, Raven Smith. If you want to find out more about what it takes to be a boss and the stories behind the inspirational figures of today, make sure to tune in.